The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, September 15th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Have you heard the good news? The economy is heating up. The recovery is real. Things are picking up. Unfortunately, certain sectors of the economy felt threatened by this news, like Eeyore impersonators, sad trombonists. And as far as I could tell, many members of the media. After years of stagnant wages, we finally got signs of a real economic recovery from the new Census Bureau report. The recovery, though, also has been uneven, and it falls right into our political divide. So we ask, why doesn't the recovery feel better if the statistics say it is better? And we answer things like, well, it's because it's not a recovery for all, and, you know, some people are still hurting. And those at the bottom have recovered less. It's true, but we don't apply those standards to other sociological phenomena, do we? Like food prices. Why is food so expensive? Well, it's not so expensive. Food historically is inexpensive. But what about t-shirts? Why do t-shirts cost so much? We say they don't cost so much. In fact, because of China, the U.S. t-shirt business is basically dead. And the point being, they don't cost a lot. Or crime, crime rates. Crime is out of control. I think most of us in the media say, actually, if you look at the stats, it's not out of control. Now, someone could argue, yes, of course, but in some cities, like residents of Baltimore and Chicago might feel that crime is out of control and they'd be right. We wouldn't want to paint with too broad a brush. But when we say crime is out of control, a proper answer isn't, ah, but what if you're a victim? When we say the economy is recovering, why do we think a proper answer is, yeah, but not for everyone? So what I'm saying is, in general, the media correctly points out, look at the crime rates, look at the numbers, look at the evidence. Here's your perception, but your perception is wrong. But we don't do this with the economy. And until the last report, you could argue that there was still rampant income inequality and it was getting worse. But the last report shows it's getting better. Not that it's not a problem, but that it's getting better. The middle class hasn't gotten a raise. But this report shows, yes, the middle class pretty much has gotten a raise. And if you use the logical inflation statistic, not the official inflation statistic, the middle class got a raise a long time ago. By the way, that last sentence, I just saved you 20 minutes of listening to the podcast, The Weeds, which is a great podcast podcast, but they do when it comes to the chained versus unchained cost of inflation index tend to get into the weeds. So I have the reason right here, right here in my hand, I have the reason why people think the economy is doing worse than it is. You ready? It's because people are wrong. They are just wrong. Why are they wrong? Could be motivated thinking, could be partisanship. The uh, Democratic polling firm, public policy polling, says that when they ask Is the economy getting better? 64% of Republicans say unemployment has risen under President Obama, and only 27% of Republicans say it's gone down, which it has. In fact, even with the stock market, 57% of Republicans say the stock market has gone down under Obama. People don't know who the vice president is, to which we say, well, that's ignorant. Two-thirds of Americans can't name a single Supreme Court justice. One-third think the number of justices is some number other than nine. They're wrong. And people think the economy is bad. 
they're wrong. Can't we say they're wrong? No, we have to say the gains have been uneven. We have to note there's still poverty in America. Hey, what if you're a coal miner? What if you aspire to be a coal miner? Well, you're wrong. I mean, don't be a coal miner. That's a terrible industry to get into. But the polls should suck up all the coal miners and all the people in the coal mining families, and they should reflect that small portion of America, but they should also be polling all the people doing pretty well, and yet think that they're neighbors are all coal miners. There is an old saying, a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose yours. Right now, we're living through something of an economic delusion where everyone on your block has a job, but they all think they're coal miners. Anyway, for more highly sensitive takes on today's news, we'll be joined soon by 538's Harry Enten. And in the spiel, Donald Trump visits a black church where the congregation angrily shouted down attempts to silence him with cries of, let him speak, let him speak. We should note this is Trump's version. But now get the Maalocks, prime the Pepto. The polls have tightened like a Victorian corset and there might not be any breathing room left. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? Joining me now is Harry Enten, the senior political writer for 538.com. Hello, Harry. Shalom. Shalom. So I know that your consumption habits tend towards root beer and uh, bad food and Hardcastle and McCormick, but I want to bring up a media enterprise right around that time. It was called Highlander, and uh, one of the sequels was called The Quickening. And we're seeing something of a quickening, which is a reanimation, although in the polls it is known as The Tightening. And I know that even though 538 and you guys are quick to dismiss certain results that might be outliers you do subscribe to the notion that the polls have tightened that's legitimate right absolutely uh you know you can judge how close the race is by where the outliers are so it used to be that the outliers might have said oh hillary clinton plus 15 but now the outliers are more hillary clinton plus nine and the average has certainly tightened to about a three or four point race nationally, whether you look at the swing state polls and they add them all together, or whether you just look at the national polls, clear tightening in the race. This doesn't surprise me because mostly through the month of August, Trump was actually campaigning and Hillary was busy making or raising money. Although maybe this is just, you know, a post hoc justification. And if the exact opposite happened, I'd say this doesn't surprise me because people are quickly learning that Trump is an implausible candidate. Yeah, I mean, look, it's always difficult to know why certain things happen, but we can tell whether or not that they have happened. And I would point out that this is a race that's returning more towards the fundamentals, but one in which Hillary Clinton has an edge, mostly because Donald Trump is the least popular candidate, at least in modern presidential history. Now, I get that. But on CNN, I saw a headline. I mocked it on Twitter. It said, polls show race tied. And then when you clicked on that headline, it said, Hillary Clinton leads by two. This was the tide poll. But that's within the margin of error. I do not think this is how margin of error works. Am I right? The way at least the media uses it and most pollsters use it is 95% 
of the time will get a result within X or Y, right? But there are many other types of errors. And more than that, you could easily say the margin of error and apply that instead of with a 95% confidence interval, you could have it with an 80% confidence interval or a 90% confidence interval. There's nothing magic about 95%. Look, if you look at the polls, you add them all together, what you generally see is that Hillary Clinton is leading this race by between three and four percentage points, probably leaning a little closer to the four if you're looking at our polls only forecast. And while if that was the result one time, perhaps we could say, hey, maybe this race is too close to call. When you add everything together over multiple multiple polls, you recognize that that lead is probably real. It's not just because of the quote-unquote margin of error. Yes, I get that. But I just want to make this point so people understand. I think the layman looks at the idea of margin of error, and perhaps they assume that any numbers that fall within what they say the 2% margin of error is all the same. So this poll showed, I think, that Hillary was at 45 and Trump was at 43. But what that really means is that there's 95% chance that Hillary is between 43 and 47, and a 95% chance that Trump was between 40 and 44. They're not just, it doesn't make all the numbers within the margin of error, you know, interchangeable. Right. The most likely outcome is what exactly the poll said. That's right in the center of the normal curve, knowing nothing else. Yeah. Another CNN, and I'm not just picking on them, but I noticed some of their polling hype. They had this outlier poll a a month ago, maybe, that showed, I think, Clinton up 10. You can tell me if that really was an outlier. Then later polling, it came down to earth and it showed Clinton up five. And their headline was Clinton's lead cut in half. CNN has had some interesting polls. I mean, I trust the CNN polls as much as I trust any other media outlets polls. They're done by a good pollster. They, you know, use live interviews. They call cell phones. But that's part of the reason why I'm always hesitant just to look at one poll, right? Any individual poll can have an outlier result. But I think overall, what we do see in this race, generally speaking, is there is a real tightening of the race, regardless of whether or not you look at the outliers or not. Okay, you mentioned if you include Johnson and Stein, should pollsters, they're not on in every state, should we trust the results that people say, yeah, I'm going to vote for Johnson and Stein? It looked like Johnson was trending much higher than you would expect uh, someone with his paucity of funding and name recognition to get. What's your what's your stance on pollsters asking that and how to think about polls that include them versus polls that are just head to head? So 538, we generally do include the polls that include Johnson and Stein. We do use that question. However, we don't make a projection for Jill Stein. She is not going to be anywhere close on the ballot in all 50 states. Johnson's going to be far closer. So we do believe at the end of the day, in including him in, in those particular polling numbers, and it shouldn't be too surprising as far as I'm concerned that Johnson and Stein, particularly Johnson, are polling so high, is polling so high, given how unlike both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are. Uh, If you look at the two-way matchup without them, you generally see the undecided is much higher. And I'm just not sure that there's going to be at least a good portion of the electorate who at the end of the day, it's just going to say, I can't vote for either Clinton or Trump. So I'm going to pull the lever for either Johnson. I should point out, though, that we do know over history, third party candidates share of the votes does tend to go down. And we do know you mean the stated preference goes down towards election day? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When and, it becomes a th- when it goes from theory to oh, am I really going to vote for this guy who might not know where Aleppo is? Right. Granted, the New York Times writer who wrote up that piece managed to have two errors, um, and I'm sure if you asked most people, they didn't know where Aleppo was. And I went to the Aleppo Wikipedia page, and they called soccer football. So you know, I'm just not quite sure you can trust anything that comes out of that particular city. Johnson and Stein aren't very well known. 
And so it's very clear that this right now is at least a protest vote. It's not a vote really for either Johnson or Stein. It's a vote against Clinton and Trump. So that might give me a little suspicion and, you know, thinking that these Stein and Johnson numbers will hold up. Now, there are three versions of the overall meta question. Does who does 538 think will win and what are their percentages? And you have polls, polls plus and, and the right now forecast. Those have changed. I mean, they haven't swung wildly, but I think at one point Trump was something like uh, only a 12 percent chance to win. Now he's up to 30. Should we look askance at the fact that there has been that much fluctuation in the prediction models? Well, I, I, you know, what I would say is that we have a lot more undecideds and a lot more people saying they're going to vote third party than usual. So I would say that, yeah, this is not as nearly of a predictive election as it was four years ago where the polls were very, very stable. But I would point to the polls plus model, which takes into account the economy, is a little more uh, suspecting of convention bounces. And we see that Clinton's chance of winning in that particular model has been relatively stable instead of being, say, during the conventions till now, something between a 50 and 90 percent chance as the polls only. The polls plus has generally been between 60 and 80 percent. So to me, that does tell us that, you know, over the long term, Hillary Clinton has been the favorite. But there is definitely more indecision within the electorate and therefore more uncertainty about the ultimate outcome than usual, given the lead that Hillary Clinton has normally put up. I want to back up for a second and ask you in general about election forecasting, because I know there's weather forecasting, sports forecasting. Nate Silver, your boss at 538, who is the engineer of the model, has done great stuff with sports forecasting. But it strikes me that with sports, for instance, you're dealing with more known phenomena. You have two teams, right? And you have, first of all, a lot of data. So in baseball, you know, just tens, hundreds, tens of thousands of games that have been played. And you know that if one team does nothing to stop the other team, that team, the first team will, you know, score points, perhaps score points ad infinitum. But with election forecasting, you're not just putting a figure on what we think, you know, in in history, when one candidate has trailed by three, here are the chances that that candidate can come back, you know, given the date on the calendar that the candidate's trailing by three. You're also making a judgment on things like if the polls are accurate. There's no equivalent to that in sports um sports forecasting. You're also making a judgment that, okay, here's the judgment that the polls are accurate. Here's the judgment that what people tell a pollster, even if it is accurate, will drive them to the voting booth. And then the last thing you're making a judgment on is the chances that those things change. It just seems a lot, many, many more variables than other kinds of forecasting. Well, I would certainly say that's true, particularly for baseball. Uh, you look, you play 162 games a year, you get 500, 600 ABs, uh, you know, there's a lot more sample size that's going on and it's a lot easier to project out what the season is going to end up looking like. That said, the playoffs are obviously a much smaller sample size and knowing what will happen at best one game, if we're a wild card, three out of five in a divisional series or then uh, four out of seven, there have been plenty of errors when it comes to that. But I would certainly point out that in weather, I think the weather and the politics are particularly interesting because there are errors in measurement when it comes to weather. We cannot measure the atmosphere 
perfectly. That's part of the reason why you have weather models and then you have ensemble forecasts, which try and understand what would happen if our initial estimates, our initial measurements are a little bit off. And you're measuring all these different parts of the planet and you're trying to understand, okay, do we actually understand what's exactly going on? And weather errors really multiply upon themselves in ways that errors in no other particular field, at least the ones that we've mentioned, really do. And so a small error in, say, Wyoming could throw everything off. If you missed where the 500 millibar low is in Wyoming, if it's in the northern part of the state instead of the southern part of the state, the whole entire thing can explode in your face. And instead of the snowstorm delivering 12 inches to Raleigh, North Carolina, it could deliver 12 inches of snow to Washington, D.C. So I would argue that, yes, political forecasting is very difficult, especially given that we have such a small sample size over elections. But polling itself is a far more exact thing. And we can tell who's going to win an election two months out much more easily than we can tell whether or not New York City is going to get a snowstorm a week out. So your forecasts, all three of, well, I don't want to say anything wrong. So your forecasts are all saying not just what are the likelihoods that the polls will change, but also making an assessment of what are the likelihoods that the polls are accurate. Exactly. Look, on election day, even if we have, you know, Hillary Clinton leading Donald Trump by, say, four percentage points, We're still going to have Donald Trump at a non-trivial percent to win the election. It's not going to be high. We expect the polls are going to be pretty good, but pretty good doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be perfect. And there is an error even on election day. But is there any effort to take into account the uniqueness of Donald Trump? This is my theory. I don't think your model's wrong, but, and I don't know if I have a way of proving this, but in my gut, it seems to me that every other Republican pre-debates, you could make the case that that person has shown a lot better track record of making coherent statements that connect to the public in debates than Donald Trump does. If you told me that Hillary is up three before the debates, I would say that's a better situation than any other candidate could ever be if they're only up three before the debates, given who she's debating. Well, then I would suggest that you go to the political betting markets and lay a nice uh, Benjamin Franklin down and put your money where your mouth is. Harry Anton, senior writer for 538. Thank you, Harry. Uh, Michael, it is a pleasure beyond a pleasure to talk with you. And let me follow that with an editorial note. I took Harry's admonition to heart. If you're so sure Hillary will win, bet on it. You heard my objections there, but I think the price is right. She has a 65% chance to win, the betting markets say. That is too good an opportunity to pass up. So I did it. I took out a contract on Hillary Clinton's election on Betfair today. 493 shares at 65 cents, meaning if Hillary loses... I lose $475. If she wins, I win $320. But also, I suppose, I win the return of American greatness. And we should say on the show tomorrow, Chris Malamphy will be here. Guess what year from this song he's talking about. Hi, everybody. I'm Archie Bell with the Thrills of Houston, Texas. We don't only sing, but we dance just as good as we want. In Houston, we just started a new dance called the Tighten Up. Did you get it? Tune in tomorrow. And now the spiel. 
Donald Trump spoke to a black church in Flint, Michigan yesterday. It did not go well. The pastor of the church, Faith Green Timmons, good pastoral name, came over and told Trump to stop politicizing his remarks. Here was Trump's reaction in the moment. Oh, 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 okay. 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 That's good. This led to some yelling from the sparse crowd, and Trump answered some shouts uh, that he discriminated against tenants when he was a builder in New York. Here's what he said. No, I never, never would, never would. Trump, it was agreed, could stay, but he could not get a hallelujah. For the first time in a black church, he could not get an amen from the congregation. But things seemed, not going to say well, they seemed Trumpish until this morning, When he went on Fox and Friends and said the reverend had it in for him from the jump. When she got up to introduce me, she was so nervous. She was shaking. And I said, wow, this is sort of strange. And then she came up. So she had that in mind. There's no question about it. Well, we did have some questions about it. So we're inviting into this spiel NPR reporter Scott Detrow. Scott is a key player on the NPR political podcast. Who is there? Taking notes, possibly even rolling. I was rolling, and I had my boom mic with me in full pool reporter mode. Wow. So you were the pool reporter? It was up to you to chronicle the event? Well, there was a bunch of us from each medium, but yeah, I was, I was the radio guy in the room. Okay, so what Trump said happened, and we played tape of what actually happened, but he told Fox... Something was up, because I noticed she was so nervous when she introduced me and she called NBC, ABC, she, you know, ABC was up the owner of an NBC network and she said he owns ABC and we sort of smiled together. I think there are pronouns there that I don't understand <laughs> the nouns they refer to. What, what's he talking about there? He was introduced by Armstrong Williams, who is best known right. as, a, as a close advisor and friend of Ben Carson, who, of course, ran against Donald Trump for president. And I guess uh, Armstrong Williams also owns uh, a local television station there. So uh, that was kind of the title they were using to introduce him. But I guess she mis- mixed the networks up. I don't know. I mix networks up all the times when I'm trying to figure out which local station is what. But uh, but yeah, that's what he was referring to there. Got it. Was there anything in the pastor's countenance that seemed nervous to you? No, no. She didn't seem nervous at all. She she briefly introduced him. And when the big moment happened where she came and interrupted him, she didn't seem yep. nervous at all. I just saw her slowly walking out there and I thought, oh, what's going on here? And, and she just calmly said, you know, Mr. Trump, uh, this is not a political event. We asked you here to talk about Flint. Didn't yeah. seem nervous to me. And this wasn't just her injecting some of whatever her personal idea is about what a candidate should say. By letter of the law, a church, which is a nonprofit, can't endorse candidates. And so while there is a long tradition of inviting politicians to speak, what you're supposed to do if you're a politician is, for instance, not mention your rival. So knowing that, and I know you know that, what you think about the interruption? Yeah, I, I think we should say that that is that is a rule that is very rarely enforced, especially in even uh, in even numbered years like this one. You know, Hillary Clinton uh, is it goes to to a lot of churches. That's that's kind of a typical political thing to do, and that's why it's been interesting that Donald Trump has talked a lot about kind of removing those restrictions because there's something there's there a thing that's hardly ever enforced. But yeah, what she said was that it was less about kind of uh, IRS restrictions, but more about what the Trump campaign had said to her would be the focus of the event. She said her understanding was that it was going to focus on Flint's water crisis. 
And uh, when he went into basically a version of his stump speech and, and was talking about Hillary Clinton specifically, that's when she came out and stopped it. Yeah. And then Donald Trump in the moment seemed to take it well and went on with his speech. But there was some back and forth with the audience. What did you see? What did you hear? How close were you to the 50 people in the room who were maybe saying something to Trump? Yeah, that's what really struck me about this Fox and Friends interview, that Trump said that the crowd uh, chanted for him to keep speaking. I'll tell you what really made me feel good. The audience was saying, let him speak, let him speak. <laughs> the exact opposite actually happened. There were a couple people in the crowd who, who turned on Trump at this moment and started to really press him on issues. Uh, it was a pool reporting moment where uh, I couldn't quite hear what they were saying. And then back on the bus and the plane, I had my headphones pressed to my ears as, as tight as I could get them. And uh, one of the questions was about the fact that he was sued by the federal government for racial discrimination very early in his career. That's uh, one of the things that people asked him about. And at that point, when people were, were basically heckling him, uh, Reverend Timmons said Trump was a guest in their church and that he needed to be treated with respect. So uh, far from ambushing him, she actually stood up for him at that moment and, and quieted the crowd down when they were turning on him. So when you pressed your headphones to your ears, you did not hear any of these 50 African-American parishioners from Flint, Michigan chanting, let him speak, let him speak. Am I getting that right? Yes. And uh, if, if there was a let him speak groundswell, I, I would have I would have heard it with my with my own ears uh, in the room that that just didn't happen. Scott Detrow, I want to thank you for getting past your nervousness in talking to me and uh, dealing with the crowds yelling, let him speak. We did. We decided to acquiesce to that. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. You know, I, I was planning a trap here, but I decided to roll with it. And that's it for today's show. Will the new American Ninja Warrior have a single word tattooed on his forearm for inspiration? Just producer Mary Wilson has bought that contract at 33. The first contestant eliminated in Dancing with the Stars, Chris Berube, just producer, has Ryan Lochte at 21 cents. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, went big with Rick Perry at 38 cents. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, played the parlay that pays 78 if Ryan Lochte can name more cabinet ministers than Rick Perry. The gist, if the election were held three times, Trump would win once. But as he points out, if we were held 30 times, he'd win 10 times, and then we'd all get so tired of winning. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, thanks for listening.